Welcome to the Community Development Podcast. A podcast dedicated to community development practice and approaches, sharing our learning and connecting the workforce. My name is Russell. That's a warm welcome to the podcast to Ken Moon. How are you, Ken? I'm good, thank you, Russell. Slowly recovering. Recovering recovering from what? Because you did actually put something out on LinkedIn, and this all will come apparent in due course as we're chatting. Yeah. Um, very much what kind of what we're talking about uh, has has its has its has its origins going many, many years back to things like you know, study and interests, activism more generally, but but specifically this pandemic and the impact it had on you health wise and things. Yeah. So I had to um take redundancy um i didn't have to i chose to take redundancy um developed long covid without ever having covid which doesn't make any sense to me but um i'd obviously had a brush with covid and developed long covid symptoms which basically consisted of chronic fatigue and lots of just not being able to do very much at all so yeah so took redundancy to give myself space and time to recover and whilst i was doing that I was able to sort of get on with a project which I kind of already started, but it, it gave me more time, if not the capacity, to start putting together um, a group and the infrastructure that goes with the group, so a committee and so on, and getting people together to help me set up the bank account, etc., for running a small community group, which is sort of where we are now. So you're living in pont de breve mm-hmm. in the, the sort of heart of the South Wales coalfield? mentions sort of activism, uh, interests in, in the environment, ecology, things like that. Anyone who follows you or has any interaction with you, perhaps on on, on, on socials, on, online, will know that you have a keen interest in renewables, things like that. But tell us a little bit more about yourself, fill in some of those gaps. Oh, gosh, how long do you have? Yeah, finished university kind of knowing what I didn't want to do and no clue what I did want to do. And I got involved... <laughs> I got involved in environmental activism through a guy called Larch Maxey, really. So he was a lecturer, a PhD student there at the time, and he was doing research into sustainable livelihoods, but he'd also spent time at Manchester Airport protests and other sort of significant protests of the 1990s. And I think I'd just been, you know, the minor strikes, all the kind of stuff that had been going on in the background as I was growing up and just kind of came out of my schooling with a profound sense of social injustice um, and environmental injustice. So when I met Larch, I mean, I was already an open book, if you like. So Larch introduced me to direct action um, and direct action campaigning. And I got involved in environmental, in, in animal rights activism um, anti-globalization protests etc etc and spent a fair few years sort of doing that in and around university um did a bit of traveling around europe uh getting involved in different campaigns that were going on and then kind of burnt out i suppose a little bit but also kind of came to a point where i thought okay it's all well and good for me to protest against the things i don't like about the way the world works at the moment um, but what about the way the world could work? And I came across something called permaculture, uh, which is um, a design systems approach to living sustainably. Um, worked, sort of looked into that, studied that, got really into it, qualified as a teacher, 
in adult education and started running permaculture design workshops in Cardiff uh, while setting up a community garden project and volunteering with the city centre youth programme there and then went on to run Riverside Market. Um, so my, my activism kind of became my work in a sense. So I never really wanted a career. I just sort of happened across a job that was going that fitted with, with my outlook and what I wanted to do in life. And then the rest kind of goes from there, really. Which is interesting because a lot of the people I speak to on this podcast, and it's, a, it, it's very similar to myself and my kind of career path, career in inverted commas, it kind of gives the impression that there's been some sort of plan and intent and forethought, a bit like yourself. Yeah, sort of I, prefer, I prefer to use the word Kareen rather than career. Career, Kareen, yeah, I like that. But almost an element of stumbling into, falling into this sort of work, these sorts of areas and themes, albeit, you know, there was that uh, nascent and, and like you, you talked about, a, you know, a keen sense of, of, of social injustice, that sense that things can be done differently and better, for me, there was always that sense, you know, why why do so many people do things on their own? Why, why don't we just come together, pool, collectivise and look for collective solutions? That was kind of one of my things that always was at the back of my mind when looking at some of these issues, whether they were through, through the course of study in university or things in my own life, my own communities and, and, and so on. So it's very often a theme from people that, that speak on this, that join me on this um, that have careened rather than careered. Uh, I like yeah. that. I like that. And I think at the time when when all of this stuff was going on and when we were looking at career choices, I mean back in the nineteen nineties, there weren't there wasn't that level of awareness. So there weren't that many um courses at university about around environmental issues. There weren't masters courses in this kind of thing. You know, I remember going on to the school computer, um, which we just about had, and typing in the search fields on the careers advice um, software that was there and it came back with um, farming and the environment agency as my career choices and neither of which really appealed to me at the time which is ironic given where I am now with my interest in land use and sustainability. Yeah yeah that that probably says more about the software and and careers services at that time. (laughs) Okay so you talk about this community initiative, this uh, you know setting a bank account, sorting out the governance and committees and all the rest of it. It's called Tier Pontepreth. T I R Pontepreth. Tier is the Welsh word for land. It's, it's sort of like a land bank, or it's looking to bank land. Unpack that term for us and people listening. Of course, yeah. Well, we we first set it up as Pontepreth Land Bank. That was the kind of the, the working title of the of the project, primarily because. I just got the sense that we're at a stage in our social evolution where communities need to be able to access land in order to develop their own sustainability, whether that's for community-led food growing, whether it's for community-led housing, whether it's for community-led energy, whatever it might be, access to land is one of the critical um, barriers or challenges that are in the in the way of, I suppose it's probably not the right way of putting it, but they're one of the key stepping stones that communities need to overcome in order to be able to progress a project. And lease negotiations with public bodies, with landowners, can be quite challenging. I know some community groups that I've supported with negotiations on asset transfers, um, one took five years just to get a lease signed. And most communities 
and community groups don't have the patience and or holding on capacity to wait five years for that to happen. So I kind of figured if communities had access to land more readily, then they could do more because they'd be using less of their scant energy and capacity. I mean, if, you, if you're all volunteers, you're basically working on these things in your free time. Therefore, using a lot of that free time to negotiate access to land is a waste of time. So if we can get the land issue covered, then we can make space available for communities to do what they want to do on land that's in and around where they live. Because I've also experienced on a couple of occasions processes of asset transfer that have taken a while, like you said, and then suddenly the disposing body, usually a public body of some description, suddenly wants to go 100 mile an hour, having done very, very little. So again, it's almost kind of feast or famine as well sometimes. That doesn't help community groups either. Particularly as well where... You might have a capacity available within a community, but you don't necessarily have the, the governance and the structure arrangements in place in order to respond to an opportunity that no. often, you know, the market has maybe defined as an opportunity or some sort of inverted commas fire sale, some sort of get shot of assets really, really quickly. Like I said, you know, the disposing body suddenly takes a, a control of the of the process and the pace at which that process is going to happen exactly um so 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 so, so to come in to come in on that one of the learning experience um i worked with um a community group in grigwen when i was um at the local county voluntary council um and they wanted to purchase um a piece of woodland that was coming onto the market again and they'd been on the market several occasions and each time it had gone to auction. And in that scenario, you're in a fast-moving situation. Um, the community doesn't have time to respond to that. It doesn't have time to set up. It doesn't have time to secure finance. It doesn't have time to do all the due diligence, the governance. It, there's a lot to do before you can commit to making a purchase on behalf of a local community. They were very, very fortunate in that a local resident was able to step in with the cash. So I was able to work with them as a group to form their initial constitution to help them get their bank account up and running and then to refer them across to um, what was Wales Cooperative Centre and is now Compass. And Compass supported them with then a share offer. So whilst they were getting all of that done, the agent or the individual from the local community was able to go to the auction knowing the community wanted to do this and were committed to doing it. So there was a lot of trust involved. They bought the land and the community then had time to set up. Now, having an angel investor like that in a community is rare. So the idea of the bank is we perform that function for communities in in and around Pontypridd. So we we will save money to be able to step in into a fast moving situation. You're investing in the capacity and that willingness uh, and well, potentially assets as well and, and, and finance, we can get into the finance model of this in due course. It's there already rather than retrospective having to put it in place when you know the starting gun is fired, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. So the, sa- the, the savings model means that we can start to build up um, a pool of resource. Um, we've got, you know, we'll have the, the infrastructure of a community group that's up and running. The infrastructure of the bank account is there, so money can be banked at the time and we'll be saving money as through a membership subscription, which is building a bank of money 
so that when land comes onto the market, we can make a decision about whether to go for it or not, rather than make a decision about do we set up an organisation, do we do all of this? Yeah. It's, it's all ready to go. Yeah, yeah. So the forming and the storming is happening in yeah, advance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then we, if, that, if the group then wants to then purchase the land office or form in its own right, we can then support them to do that, but we do it after it's been secured rather than beforehand. And just give us a sense of timetable time in terms of, you know, when was this for you? You mentioned it during the pandemic and, and things like that. But when did it begin to take shape as, a, as an entity, people getting on board, forming your committees, opening your bank accounts? Give us some sort of timetable. We're recording uh, early March yeah. 2023. So, well, it would have been 2022. So we I started by, with a Facebook group because I, I, thought, I, I thought this was a good idea, but I had no idea how many people in the community might think it was a good idea. You know, I mentioned the phrase sort of harebrained previously, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a normal thing people do. So I thought, OK, well, I'll, I'll set up a Facebook group and I'll invite people I know who live and work in Pontypridd area to join this Facebook group so we can start having conversations about whether or not people think this is a good thing to do or not. And within a matter of weeks, I think there were 100 people on the group um, and it's grown since then relatively slowly. There's now 250 people which is, you know, good for a small community group, not a huge amount for the size of the town. So we still got a lot of work to do. And then I had COVID, which kind of slowed everything down quite a lot. And, you know, we mentioned timescales and moving it, moving at the speed of, of those involved. Well, obviously, I'm only able to move relatively slowly because during that period of long COVID, I was experiencing a lot of peaks and troughs. So um, I was having to kind of pace myself um, really well so it's it we've moved slowly and we've moved at the speed of the of myself and also the committee so a couple of the committee members have never been involved in anything like this before so you know we are kind of building the capacity of the members of the committee to kind of take gentle steps with this not to rush into anything and we're working towards incorporation and I think we'll be incorporating in about two years as the income grows and as we start to hit that five five to ten thousand pound in savings point that's when we'll look to incorporate ahead of a land purchase so we'll build the committee as we go that's a really important thing is it that that's that it's a deliberative relatively relatively slow process steady process let's say rather than it be yeah. as so often asset transfer processes can impose on communities almost kind of like you know building your wings on the, on the on the way down you know after you've taken the leap yeah yeah we're not going to be opportunity led no i think that's an important point to make you mentioned uh, referring to it as harebrained uh, and i'll provide a link to that linkedin post in the show notes to what extent have you had to educate for want of a better word other people about what what this is about both in terms of the technicalities of it you know, what it actually is but also the broader conceptual point to it the justification the, your motivation to it do people see that bigger picture well i don't know yet um I, i'm yet to i'm yet to hit that um that particular um part of the community i'm sure that'll come everyone i've spoken to so far kind of gets it which i've been really pleasantly surprised by and i think it is partly to do with who we are as a community so there's a long history of of cooperatives of cooperation of communities doing this kind of thing historically even though it's 
maybe even 100 years since this was done before. So we have a lot of assets in communities that were built by the communities themselves before the welfare state came into existence. So you'll, you know you know the history of, of industrial Wales um, and a lot of the infrastructure, including some of the housing, was built through cooperatives. And that was the old cooperative model of saving part of people's weekly wages, penny in the pound or whatever it might have been, um, and slowly kind of building up that savings account that would allow a community to build a hospital which is you know when you think about that that is just mind-blowing you know we wouldn't dream of doing something like that as a community now but communities did and there's a kind of there's a memory of that in the community so when i start explaining it to people people go oh yeah 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 yeah, that makes sense. So it's interesting that you're placing it in a very historical context then. We're copying. Well, this is the thing, back to, back to the future, isn't it? I think that's a fascinating dimension, and I'm you know, a big fan and, 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 and there's a student of, of the, you know, the late Raymond Williams, where he talks about you know, true forms of independence of communities, of groups of people, maybe self-defined, self-identified. Leon Wood has, has talked about it in a current article in, in, in uh, Planet Welsh International History on Community Energy. Uh, you're, you're able to con- control the means of energy production, uh, energy any energy sale, energy, yeah. the, 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 the conservation of it as well, the impact that it has on the wider ecology in terms of the consumption of that and production of that energy. But it's a true form of independence, both yeah. from markets, but also from the state and I think that's an interesting thing isn't it around the whole kind of concept of the welfare state which in the UK we can be very very protective of things like the NHS but of course actually is a relatively newish in terms of society and certainly the the communities that you live in and I've worked in and so on um, a relatively new uh, concept Uh, as you said a lot of these things were provided by people themselves yeah i always find it quite frustrating that you, you have to kind of scratch a little bit beneath the surface to remind people of that but 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 i do tend to find on the whole people are receptive to uh, to, to that to scratching beneath the surface and being kind of politely kindly reminded led to to that kind of history um that's very very yeah. local in, in some yeah. cases yeah well it was it was this way of working that built the welfare state it built the infrastructure mm. that the welfare state was founded on so, you know, the welfare state and when the NHS was created, it took on board a lot of the health centres, the clinics, the, the hospitals, the cottage hospitals, the miners' hospitals. They became part of that infrastructure. They weren't built from scratch. They already existed. Yeah. So Anai and Bevan was building on a, a foundation of self-help. And he was embedding that, that welfare that idea of communities looking after communities, he was building that into the social sector and the communi- and the, the public sector. He was putting that, and that, that hadn't happened before, and that was really transformative. But then what we lost then was that level of community ownership and community control, and that existed to an extent through what's, you know, what's called the settlement agreement, the settlement between government and its people post-World War II, was that, okay, you gave your all during World War II, we are now going to look after you. We are going to thank you for standing up against fascism, standing up against the rise of Nazi Germany, and we're going to look after you. We're going to provide you with housing. We're going to provide you with um, health care. We're going to provide you with access to cheap and affordable food. We're going to provide you with access to energy. And we're going to do that because we don't want to see the precursors for fascism arising in our societies again. 
And now we're at a point where we're starting to see those precursors coming back because the welfare state is being undermined and it's being underfunded. So we are, Turpon de Pre is kind of at a point in history where we feel a little bit like we're, we've gone back in time, but it's, you know, history is never entirely cyclical. We're in a different place, but maybe it's time now that our communities once again step up and say, hang on a minute, what we want now is we want a different settlement. We want a new settlement for a world in which we can all live sustainably. And maybe this is one way of achieving that. Mm-hmm. I mean, are there any other examples that you're drawing on? I mean, you talk about this being a harebrained idea, but I mean, you know, presumably there's other examples of this around and about, whether those are in the UK or beyond. There are. They're not all... I mean, people are kind of doing, finding different ways of using the same sort of legal model, if you like. So there's a group in... One of the inspirations for this is um, 4CG in Cardigan. So I don't know if you know much about them. And they're set up as a community benefit society. They started about 10 years ago and they were um, asset transferred a car park in the centre of Cardigan. So their savings, their income generator, if you like. So we're looking at a membership base for our income. They had a car park and their car park was basically they said to the community, every time you come to Cardigan, park in the car park that's owned by the community. So people did. Um, and it turned what had been a liability for the local authority into an asset for the community. That car park then allowed them to do other things. So they started to host a farmer's market on the site, another source of income, but also a regeneration tool for the town. So bringing local traders into the town centre, bringing people in um, specifically to visit the farmer's market and do other shopping while they're there. They now own something like 15 properties in Cardigan. So they do share offers. So when their property comes up or it looks like it's coming up to auction, they'll do a share offer um, and then people buy shares in the property through the Community Benefit Society. And then they're able then to determine the market rate. They're able to decide what they're going to charge rental to tenants. So it's taking the control of that local town and the pricing of that lo- in that local town and it's putting it back in the hands of the community which again is fundamentally transformative so go back to the the financial model for tier pont you talked about i think you mentioned a notional sum of is it five six thousand pound a bit earlier at which point you'll probably likely yeah. incorporate how, how is that amount of money building up so we had a sort of soft launch um during great big green week last september where we kind of just launched the idea um and just let it kind of just state in people's minds, let people have a think about it and come back to us. And we said, you know, okay, we'll launch our membership scheme soon. We've been looking at different platforms, different, because what we don't want is um, a lot of admin. So we don't want to be managing payments. So we decided from the outset that we would use an online uh, membership management tool, and there are different options out there. And in the end, we kind of decided that Patreon offered us the functionality that we needed um, to get us up and running um, until we've created our own website and have our own um, CSV um, tools built into our own website, then we can use Patreon to get us to that point. So the membership um, payments, the membership tiers, so the levels at which you can join at, they start at £3 a month and they go through to £10 a month. And we've used the 
donor economics model to determine what the tiers are. So the lowest tier is the social floor. The middle tier is the safe space, which is £5, and then the ecological ceiling is the £10. And you decide where you feel you fit. So if you feel that um, as a family or as an individual, you are falling before below the social floor. So that might be income, it might be cost of living crisis, it might be lots of things that determine that you feel you're falling below the social floor. You just pay the minimum amount. Whereas if you feel that you're in the ecological ceiling, and I put myself in that category because I'm very hard on myself, um, uh, then you pay £10. So it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's a usual kind of, if you earn the least, you pay the least, but it's got a spin on it, which is an environmental spin, which is around, if you feel that you are living in a way which harms the most, then actually maybe you should pay more. And if we were talking about credit unions, for example, that financial cooperative, we might talk about a common bond area, that kind of connection, usually an area, but it might be an employer or a workplace, that common bond. Is there a similar dimension to Tier pont de Do you have to be resident in pont de Is it resident in a certain postal code? So yes, uh, to vote, you have to be either living or working um, in the pont de area. And the pont de area is, is, is pretty big. So we're talking sort of Glencork right the way down to, well, just north of Tafswell, so Mount Garrow. So it's quite a big sort of geographical area. And it's, uh, we've taken the Pont Priest Town Council footprint as the area. But then we've also got people from Anisabal who were saying, well, you know, can we be part of it? Can we be part of Pont Priest for this? And I'm like, yeah, okay, it's fine. Because it's a, it's a geography of self-identity, if you like. And then for those who are sort of from further afield, so we've got members who sort of live in Cardiff who are interested in what we're doing. That's a supporters category. So they're members, and they, they're, they're supporting members. So they, they don't therefore have the right to vote, but they can come along to meetings and they can have a say and they can discuss things. And as you say, kind of um, be part of who we are and what we're doing, but they don't get to decide what happens, for example, with land in the area. And I think that's quite interesting because you, you, you've been quite upfront and honest about that as well, isn't it? And I, I, I'm... I'm not aware of a similar distinction between supporters and members reflected then in, in, the, in the voting rights. You know, I will join, for example, I know supporters trusts of, of, of clubs because I believe in the model and the concept of, of supporters trusts, but also ultimately supporters running their own, owning their own football clubs or any sport club for that matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I will join uh, supporters trusts of clubs that I don't necessarily have a huge affiliation for, particularly if they may be in the in the running for, for, for taking over the reins at, at their club. But I'm not aware, I don't maybe I have to go back and read the, the small print a little bit more, more, more closely, but I, I'm not aware that there is any distinction. You know, once you remember, you remember, you have a voting right. I, I'm not saying I'm a, a for or against your particular model, but I'm interested in it. And the fact that it's on this yeah. and it's up front and people know essentially, you know, what they're signing up for from, 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 the, from the get-go. Yeah, indeed. It's almost kind of like an, an affirmative action in the, or a positive discrimination for those who are particularly affected by the issues locally, availability of land within, within your, the, the Pont de Prix area. But we know we have, we have people who are interested in what we're doing who are interested in moving to the area. So they might be interested in land for a housing cooperative, for example. Right. But our, our, our response to that is, yes, you'd be welcome to do that, but the community would have to agree that that's what they want, the land that the community owns to be used for. To be used, yeah, yeah. But equally, of course, people can join, become members, witness what's going on, experience it, you know, they're learning at the same time that you are, 
maybe then to do something similar then in in, in their area as well. So there is maybe a, yeah, a, a, a benefit for the, the pollination then maybe longer term uh, yeah. in in and for other yeah, other I'd areas. I'd say probably about a third, if not more, of the people that join the Facebook group have said that the reason they've joined is because they're really interested in learning about what we're doing to apply it where they live mm. rather than because they live in the area. Yeah. Although you should probably say that Podoprido is a it's a large town and it, it serves quite a large area. So some of those communities that people won't necessarily be aware of that you've mentioned, Tafswell, Treadvale, and Anderson Bull, they're, they're outlying communities that Podoprido is, is t- towards the centre of those. So, you know, it does it does serve a large area. Yeah, yeah it is. It is big. Give me some plugs then. If, if people are listening to this and thinking, OK, I'm curious, I'm interested, I'd like to know more. I'm not going to jump in feet first just yet, but I'd like to read a bit more. You mentioned your Patreon page. You want to give that a plug? Any socials, the Facebook page as well? So the Facebook handle... Um, so we are at Tier Pontypridd. There's no point in me giving you the group's number, but if you look up Tier Pontypridd on Facebook, you'll find us that way. On Patreon, then it's a little bit easier. So patreon.com forward slash Tier Pontypridd is how you find us on Patreon. We will be leaving Patreon at some point once we've developed an alternative payment platform. So Patreon's really useful for when you don't have a lot of infrastructure in place, but they do charge um, a fee. And you might want to think about that when you're think- if you're thinking about joining. And you might decide, actually, I'd rather go for an annual membership and, vo- and put more money into the organisation than pay monthly. But we wanted the monthly option to be there because we know that cash flow is an issue for people. It's worth pointing that out, of course, because it has a social conscious it's the social aims to, to, to the whole to the whole venture as well as the, the ecological environmental side of it sure yeah there's a big land ownership is a key issue in terms of social justice you know people who have control over what happens in the landscape they live in have a lot more control over their lives mm. and that's fundamentally it if someone was listening to this and thinking oh, i've heard about land trusts may be familiar with some of the work that's mm-hmm. taking place in Scotland, for example, because I know there's a huge uh, drive to, to make access to land and ownership of land a little bit more democratic there, for example. Is this the same sort of thing or not? It will be. So at the moment, we're a community association. So as I mentioned, we're sort of starting slowly and growing organically. But the long-term plan is that we will become a community land trust and a community benefit society. So the, um, the assets that we secure and the assets we that are developed on our sites will be assets that are then locked into community ownership, and that asset lock's really important to us. For example, um, if we, as a kind of a secondary cooperative, if you like, um, are offering the infrastructure, etc., to allow a community to buy a piece of land, and they then decide they want to own the land themselves, then they we would encourage them to set up with an asset lock and tier upon to prove as being the body that would be you know, if they folded, the land would stay within the kind of the Tier Pontypridd family or, you know, and it would go to another asset-locked body. And we've, we've got several asset-locked bodies in the town. So we've got Club of Bont, uh, there's a local whole food shop called Peach Shop, which is community-owned, um, and there's also the Celtic Club, which is more of a sort of a drinking sort of establishment where, you know, it's a member's club. And some of them are new, some of them are historical, um, so what we were really keen on is that Tier Pontypridd becomes a vehicle by which new assets can become part of community-owned, that community of community-owned assets in the town, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think it does. I think people find that quite useful, actually, um, particularly the, the, the definition of, of, of asset lock. Tier Pontypridd, if people want to email us, 
is tierpontepreve at gmail.com. So that's T-I-R Pontepreve at gmail.com. Well, best of luck with it. I'm going to sign up. Oh, great. Um, for sure. Lovely. I think it's important that you know, there's more and more of these ventures taking place and if it you know who knows it might be something that i want to it would be would, would be of benefit to the community where i live um given that we as we we're talking offline of facing facing some of our own challenges at the moment without yeah. going into too much I detail here <laughs> well i think it's i mean cardiff's got real interesting challenges in that it's most of the area that defines cardiff or is defined by cardiff as a geographical region is already under a huge amount of pressure so most of the land in and around cardiff is under huge pressure from housing developments and from other types of developments that go with that housing and we're seeing that in Pontypridd, we're seeing that kind of not encroachment, but that expansion into green spaces, and we're thinking, okay, well, where are people in Cardiff going to get their food from in the future? If we're seeing potentially the start of the collapse of of global food chains, and we're going to need to grow more food locally, then there's an opportunity for the hinterlands and the areas around Cardiff to start to think about how they might grow more food for the city, and how communities around Cardiff might benefit from that. And there lies quite a sobering message, and, it, and it, it's necessarily sober as well. But um, yeah, you're striking a, a, a huge, huge number of issues, and it, it's also kind of like I suppose it's a nice illustration of that think global, but act local concept that sometimes people that I encounter in community work sometimes kind of struggle with. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're not; it's not that they they don't appreciate that there's a climate emergency, that there's you know the, the, the huge amount of pressure on the climate, and it can impact locally. I mean, you only got to look at the, the, the floods in Pontypridd over the last couple of years to see that. They're alert to that, but making that connection to, well, what, what changes can I make? What changes can my family, my household make in order to mitigate that, in order to, you know, our, our, our little contribution? That can sometimes be something that people struggle with, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I've struggled with it, you know, most of my life. You know, you try and live as sustainably as you can, but when you're living in an unsustainable society that's incredibly hard. So, you know, what we're doing is we're trying to offer people an opportunity in a way in which they can start to kind of claim some ownership over over what those solutions might look like in the future. And we don't know that this is the right way, but we're going to give it a go and we're going to try it and we're going to see if we're successful. I think that's the perfect point in which to wrap this up, Ken. Best of luck with it all. Um, All the contacts that you mentioned, the Patreon link, the Facebook link, the email I'll drop in the show notes. Yeah, and I hope people are are interested, want to know more. But main thing is that they they sign up. But as you said, there's tiers there for people to reflect their their circumstances, and that's important. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Community Development Podcast. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at comdevtpodcast, C-O-M-M-D-E-V-T podcast. And to support the podcast and help it share learning, connect the workforce and raise the profile and the merits of community development approaches, why not become a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the CD podcast.